thanks. Um, I'm going to start out with just reading a part of a psalm to you. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness. He has revealed in the sight of the nations. <laughs> he has remembered his mercy. <laughs> he has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. We're opening up with, uh, with some faster songs. And I, I wanted to invite you guys to stand. But just as this psalm says... Just shout joyfully to the Lord. Come before him with singing. Break forth into singing. And I was just meditating on that. And um, that, that line, come before his presence with singing. I was reading that this morning and I thought, wow, when I come before his presence, oftentimes I feel like I'm coming sad or like I have to kneel and I have to be accepted first before I can, you know, get up and, and be happy in his presence. But he actually says, come in with singing, which means you don't have to work yourself into this way of happiness. He wants you to come already as if you're entering the doors and he's right here. When you're walking in, you're already singing to him. You're already breaking forth and rejoicing and praise. And this is the state. Happy is he whose God is the Lord. And so I want you to just picture that. Happy is he whose God is the Lord. Um, and maybe you don't feel happy. Maybe it's just an emotion right now of, I have all of these things going on, and that's not how I typically come into his presence. But I just want to ask that all of us, even now, would be asking him to renew us. That it would become a habit of Happy is he whose God is the Lord. Show me, teach me how to come into your presence, already singing, already rejoicing, breaking forth into dance, clapping my hands. Um, and so the music is not just to help us worship. It's, it's a segue into, into teaching our spirit where it needs to be. And, and it's easy when the music is happy, when the music is upbeat. Um, so just as we begin, just be picturing that, that, that picture of God is in the midst of his people. He comes where he is wanted. He comes where he is loved. And he is so loved. I know all of you guys, and you love him. So it's not like we're begging him to come show up because he isn't here. He comes where he is loved. He comes where he's wanted. So God, I pray that you would 
Help us today. Help us with our mindset of worship. Change what needs to be changed. Increase what needs to be increased. You are a God of abandon. The man after your heart knew how to be undignified before you. It says something about what's in your heart. If David was simply mirroring you, I pray that you would teach us what abandon and worship means. That you would strip away insecurity, strip away fear. And I pray that you would make us joyful in your presence today. That we would lift our hands and we would dance before you as we did in the old days. Make this church joyful in your presence.
Yeah. Hey.
that is written on your heart. It's written that you will not restrain yourself. That you are longing even more than we are for the restoration of all things, that you really will make all things new. You will be our God. We will be your people. We sing to a king. I just thank you that you will bring the plans of your enemies to nothing. You will bring the counsel of the nations to nothing. This is the king that we sing to. Pray that you would make it a reality in our hearts what it means to have a real king. We yearn for that day. I pray that we would be, be people that watch, people that wait. That we would be people with oil in our lamps. My dear children, my beloved children, I am coming soon and very soon. But when I come, will I find faith in the earth? Now is the time, my children, to build your faith, to strengthen it. For all the things that are written will happen before my coming. And it has already begun to rain. So be prepared. Do not fear, but look to me and trust me. When you see the world falling apart around you, trust me. Put your faith in my word and faith in my promises. For I have given you a measure of my faith. Nurture it. Build it. Strengthen it. Exercise it. Use it to receive whatever it is that you need. For everything you need is already in the realm that you cannot see. And all you have to do is believe. So my children, be prepared, be ready. Let me find faith when I come that my people might be sustained, built up and strengthened and my name might be glorified. For my house will be full. It will be full. And I'm coming back for a church without spot or without wrinkle. But only you, only you can steward your own faith. So be diligent and look to me. I will guide you and lead you step by step 
I will meet your every need if you but trust in me and believe me. Be prepared, be ready, my children, for I love you with an everlasting love, with a love that knows no bounds. Be prepared. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Lord, the world is being shaken. Our nation is being shaken. But you've got a plan. And your kingdom has already started to come and is coming. And we put our trust in you. God, we thank you for your victory. We thank you that your victory is sure. And we thank you that you are altogether trustworthy. You are dependable. You are a good father. You are a mighty and gracious king. We worship you, we bless you, and we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, Dan uh, had somewhere else he needed to be. Um, so uh, we miss him, but we're glad Leah's here. And... Uh, yeah, and uh, we want to transition into prayer, and of course, our our prayers here are corporate prayers. We want everybody involved as much as as you want to be. And today, uh, we're going to pray for our missionaries, and not just our missionaries, but any missionaries around the world. And um, a lot of you guys keep in contact uh, with different missionaries, so feel free. Uh, as we pray, I'll start us off, but feel free uh, to to stand up or come up and uh, and pray specifically what God puts on your heart uh, for those who are serving around the world. Right now, a specific challenges some some people are stuck in the country where they are, and some people are stuck in, at home. Um, but we pray God's kingdom come and His will be done in and through their work, and their lives. So Father, we, we give thanks to you today. We give thanks to you for your work and your calling around the world. We thank you that you are, um, the word of God is living and active in every nation. And we thank you for those who have responded to your call to go out and leave their homes and go to foreign places to minister the gospel. Father, we pray that you would meet their every need. Most of all, that you would fill them with your spirit and that you would ground them in your word, that you would give them your encouragement and strength. Let them lead by example. Let them be an example of love and righteousness to the people that are around them. And we pray... Uh, for your financial provision, for your provision of good health, 
safety and protection. We pray for favor for them in the places that they're working and with the people that they meet. We pray for divine appointments and for God-given opportunities uh, that they may share the gospel, that they might uh, meet the needs of people with the power of God and the love of God, and that you would put your truth in their mouths. Give them boldness, give them love, give them grace and patience, and uh, make them very fruitful, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Feel free to, to step in and pray. Thank you, Father, for sending the Harsh family to um, their country and uh, of how many, many, many families are being nurtured and made, made new in you and uh, that uh, at the very foundation of the nation, uh, your kingdom is being built and continue to bless them and give them the resources they need. Uh, as your kingdom grows in that nation. Thank you. Especially for those who are working in very hard places where there's a lot of resistance, Lord God. Um, we just pray that you would give them a holy boldness, Lord God, and that their presence there would change the atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere. Lord, that uh, people would come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would identify with your love, Lord God, and with a relationship with you. And uh, we just pray that you would uh, sustain them, give them the words to say, uh, Lord, when they're in these hard places. Because um, you know the hearts of the people they're speaking to, and you can go right to the target of that. And... Um, we're just asking you, Lord, for a worldwide um, end-time harvest, as it were, as these missionaries around the world um, share the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you um, that you started this whole thing with just 12 people. And now it's all over the world, Lord God, with thousands um, working for you, Lord. But there's so many that are still lost. And so we just pray that you would give each missionary, Lord, wherever they're working in a hard place or an ancient place, um, a fruit for their labors, Lord God, that um, they would not get discouraged, but that there would be a turnaround, that the atmosphere would change because of their presence, because where they are, you are. And so we give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor, Lord. We thank you for sustaining them, for encouraging them, for giving them boldness, Lord, everything that they need to do what needs to be done in their area. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray for the Indians in the Delta Amakuku. And we pray, Lord, that the government is not holding them back from 
desiring to go out and reach more of their livelihood or their uh, brothers and sisters to you. Father, we just ask your blessing upon them, strengthen them, and let them be able to go out and reach more and more of their friends. In Jesus' name, I pray. We are going to uh, have the reading of the word in just a moment, but I'm going to explain it first. Uh, Matthew 13 is 58 verses long. It's the third longest chapter in the book of Matthew. Um, and that's what we're going to do. This, t- this was originally scheduled as two sermons because it was so long, but I said, don't worry, I can do it in one. <laughs> so I hope you guys are ready. But uh, the scripture reading, we are going to read through the entire thing. So here's what's going to happen. We have two different scripture readings this morning, uh, scripture readers this morning. Mike Shaw is going to read verses 1 through 30. Uh, Barb Kreuter is going to read the verses 31 through 58. Okay, with me so far? We're going to stand for the first 30 verses. We're going to sit for the second, however many that is. Um, and the reason for that, we, we, we stand in, uh, in honor of the word, but we're going to let you sit to honor you guys, because you don't need to stand that long, all right? So I'm just kind of giving you a little heads up of how this is going to work. Is that, is that fault? You, you with me? Okay, so Mike and Barbara, if you guys would come up, um, we're, uh, we're ready to go. And for the first section here, please, if you're able. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. (laughs) Sorry. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit. Some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Then the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, what he has will be taken away from him. 
That is why I speak to them in parables, because they are looking, they do not see. And hearing, they do not listen and understand. Isaiah's prophecy was filled in them, which says, You will listen, and listen, but never understand. You will look, and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, but understand with their hearts. And I turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do not see, or because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things that you hear, but didn't hear them. So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path, and the one sown on rocky ground. This is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the, the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word and does not produce and does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some thirty times what is sown. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sound who sowed good and seed in his field. While people were sleeping, the enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the words, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the seeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So when you went in, when you want, excuse me again. And so do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said, when you pull up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let us, let both grow together and, until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll t tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn but collect the wheat in my barn. Here ends my barn. Picking it up in verse 31. 
he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seed, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. <clears throat> all of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what, what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weed, weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the, close, harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this, this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. All right, well, that was like three-quarters of the sermon right there, so. How's everybody doing? How's everybody doing this morning? Good, glad to hear it. Okay, hey, real quick, uh, just to mention, highlight in the bulletin, it says Sunday, July 26th is a pot-blessed family meeting. Um, you might want to circle that, underline it, put it on your, so that's like two weeks from today. Okay, good. Matthew 13, I want to start by kind of recapping a little bit 
because Matthew's gospel is amazing. He takes us through the entire history of God's people. I think somebody had, had mentioned this before, but Matthew 1, the very first two words in the Greek are biblios genesios. And the, literally, that means the book of Genesis. And, and, and then uh, he takes us through the genealogy, reminding us of the, the generations in the book of, of, of Genesis. Obviously, Jesus human father was Joseph. He had these dreams reminding us of Joseph in the Old Testament. But Matthew depicts Jesus as Israel, as the son who was called out of, of Egypt. So think about it. Jesus went into Egypt and returns, just like the Israelites. He's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, reminding us of the Israelites in the wilderness for, for 40 years. He goes up on a mountain and he gives a new law, kind of reminiscent of Moses, right? Uh, he begins the conquest of his kingdom by healing and driving out demons. What did the, the people of Israel do? They drove out their, their enemies out of the, the promised land. He sends out the, the 12 disciples, kind of reminding us of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Toward the end, um, he, 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 in essence, suffers uh, exile. He is sent out of the Father's presence, if you will, reminding us of the exile of the Old Testament Israelites. But when he comes back, after the resurrection, coming back from that exile, he has authority far better, far bigger than any king ever did, and he sends his followers out to build a house for all nations. Think about it. King Cyrus, the reigning monarch back then over everything around, he's the one that gave the declaration to go and rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, if you don't, and I'm just covering some highlights here. If you don't see the, the repeated uh, imagery of what Matthew is doing here in, uh, through Jesus' life, I think we're missing part of the awesomeness of God in this story. I don't know about you guys, but I'm learning something every single week as I'm here listening to these sermons. I just think this is fascinating. Um, so I just want to encourage us Keep looking at this and keep digging into it because it is, it is amazing. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we now look at your word, we're inviting you once again to speak into our hearts and our minds. God, we don't wanna just hear some nice words. We wanna hear from you. And so Holy Spirit, we declare right now, we are open to you. We're asking you to, to take control, to rule and to reign in this time. Have your way in our hearts, in our minds. And speak into us. Amen. Amen. So Matthew 13, we're kind of in the middle of the book at this point, And uh, there, there are more and more people who are following Jesus. We just heard last week, which technically is next week, because it was Matthew 14, if you remember, okay. So um, there, he fed the 5,000 uh, it was 5,000 men plus women and children. So there's these great crowds that are following Jesus, right? But along with his popularity, he is also at this point facing lots of opposition. The, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the priests, the Sadducees, they don't like him a lot. Fair, fair assessment, okay? And they're, they're, what are they doing? They're stopping up their ears to his teaching, so Jesus begins to speak in parables and riddles. And we saw that as we just read through chapter 13, over and over, you know, so many parables in there. But if you remember back to Matthew 10, Jesus clearly told us that he did not come to bring peace. He came to set people against one another. Now, I know that's not the whole story, all right? But that is at least 
part of the effect that his ministry is going to have. And we see that with the religious leaders. As we, as we progress through the book of Matthew, there seems to be this ever-widening gap between Jesus and his followers and the religious leaders in Israel. And interestingly, toward, at least interesting to me, I don't know if it will be to you, but toward the end of chapter 13 is the last time that Jesus actually teaches in a synagogue in the book of Matthew. Before that, he was doing it a lot. Matthew 9, it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So it was pretty common for Jesus to be teaching where? In a synagogue up until chapter 13, and after that, it doesn't happen. He, he changes his focus. All right, so, so all of that is kind of preliminary to what I want to say. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole thing verse by verse, because if I did, we would be here until sometime next week, all right? Um, Thank God he's not doing that. And, but, but I do want to hit some highlights, and I do want to kind of give some overarching uh, lessons, I guess, some conclusions at the end. So the first of the, the highlights is actually the very first two verses. That same day, Jesus went out, to the out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. The, the great crowds gathered. Matthew here is actually using the verb form of the word synagogue. I didn't even know there was a verb form of the word synagogue. Um, so, so think about what he's doing is, is that crowd he has become his synagogue. Yeah, they're, they're on a beach instead of in a building. But what does he do? He takes the, the traditional posture of a synagogue teacher and he sits down. One commentator said this is the first time that we actually see Jesus pronounced as sitting down um, at all. And so he's, he's become the authoritative teacher there in that setting, if you will. And, and, and if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, did somebody else say that? I came across an interesting statistic that 61% that of Americans think that the Sermon on the Mount was written by, or was preached by Billy Graham. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> anyway, so, so, sorry, I digress. Uh, but if you think back to the, the sermon, that, that just totally floored me when I read that. Um, when you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that was uh, chapters five, six, and seven. I did six. Everybody remember? Yeah. Uh, never mind. All, all us preachers like to think that we actually have some impact when we're standing up here saying stuff. You know, but, um, so think back to, to, to five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. And I think there's some similarities here. Now, obviously, there's some big differences. He was up on a mountain. Now he's on a beach, all right? Um, but, but both of them, there's a crowd of people but I think the biggest difference is back on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was doing this line by line, easy to understand teaching. Now here, what is he doing? He's speaking in parables. And, and I, wanna, I wanna look at that word for a minute because I don't think we understand the word parable. Um, in the, the Hebrew tradition that Jesus would be drawing from, the word parable is actually rooted in the Hebrew word mashal, which uh, essentially means proverb. It's, it's more than just a story. That's our way of thinking about it, all right? See, in the Old Testament, there were proverbs, there were stories, there were riddles, there were similar, sim, similes, and all of those were, were related to and identified with the word mashal. Um, it's, it's an illustration of wisdom, if you will. But I wanna, I wanna bend that just a little because I think for our purposes, I want us to see that Jesus is using these parables as windows that we can look through and see the kingdom of God. Now, if I was, uh, if I was teaching a class right now, I would tell you that that's gonna be on the final test and you need to remember it. There's not gonna be a final test, okay? But 
I think this is a really important point. What Jesus is allowing us to do is to see, by, by these parables, he's allowing us to see into the kingdom of God in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Think, think about it. Fully one-third of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels is in parables. And so he's using these, and you know, it was real obvious in, in Matthew 13 as they read through that, right? There's so many of them. And, and he's using those parables, but the meaning isn't always immediately obvious, and that's intentional. Um, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. See, when, when Jesus started out, he was just teaching plainly. It was real obvious what he was saying, kind of going line by line, here, here, here it is. You could just take the words at face value. It wasn't hidden at all. You didn't need the secret decoder ring in order to, to figure it out, right? But now he's teaching in parables, and that really, in, in some ways, it's an act of judgment. Read verses 14 and 15 again. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. He's actually quoting from, from Isaiah chapter 6, and, and that's not an accident, as though that should surprise us, right? Um, it's, it's really Isaiah's commissioning. And it's important for us to understand that the Old Testament uh, often depicts prophets as speaking in parables. Uh, Psalm 78 describes the prophet as opening his mouth in a parable, declaring the glorious deeds of the Lord. Or the, the prophet Ezekiel complains, ah, Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? And, and God responds by telling him just to keep on speaking. So, so, in, in, in Isaiah, in quoting Isaiah, Jesus is in essence declaring, by, by, by speaking in parables and quoting Isaiah here, he's, he's declaring himself to be a prophetic voice. Jesus, I think, is giving his disciples a, a, a deeper glimpse into what he's all about. He's not just a teacher. He's a teacher with a strong prophetic edge to what he's saying here. And if you remember where Jesus is quoting from, Isaiah 6. You all know the section. Maybe you don't know that you know it, but you do because it's where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the, the seraphs were there calling out to one another and, and Isaiah is undone by this scene of God Almighty and he ultimately gets to the point where he says, here am I, send me. I'm, I'm ready to go because God, you are great, you are mighty. I'm ready to do whatever you say. And so it's his commissioning, if you will. And when Isaiah says that, then God tells him that he is sending him to a people who are deaf and blind. Um, it's the whole, you will hear but not understand, you'll see but not really, that we just read there in, in Matthew, right? So in other words, his pre Isaiah's preaching is going to bring about the, uh, the opposite results of what he wants. They're, they're not going to repent. See, this is, this is the word that Jonah would have wanted to hear. <laughs> right? He didn't want the people of Nineveh to repent, but they did. But this isn't one Isaiah wants to hear. No, no true prophet, no true preacher of God wants to hear your words are going to have the opposite effect of what you're hoping for. I don't, I don't want to hear that, right? 
And then Isaiah asks, all right, I, I understand that, but how long am I supposed to talk to them? And God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are, made, are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So God is saying that there's a, a destruction that's coming, there's an exile that's going to happen, but there will be a remnant. So think about this. Jesus here is taking Isaiah's commissioning as his own because he knows that there is a parallel in his own time. He knows that there is a destruction coming, there's an exile that's coming, but there are going to be his followers. There are going to, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be those who are in the kingdom who are still going to be faithful. But Look what he does. He says he's teaching in parables because there are those who refuse to hear. So if you think about it, his parables, just like Isaiah's preaching, actually help to bring about the very division that he's talking about. See, somebody said that, that um, uh, Jesus' parables are like double-edged swords. They reveal truth to those that are willing to hear, but they hide truth to those that aren't willing to hear. See, Jesus knows that there are some whose soil has been prepared. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who are ready to hear and take hold of it. But there are others who won't. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to push them further away, if you will. So there's this, this division already, but it's intensifying because he's speaking in parables. Now, for those who are, who are drawn in by the parables, Jesus' words are going to have a different effect. It's He's not doing the line-by-line -line teaching, like I said before. Um, what he's doing is he's re-envisioning the people to see differently, to see how the kingdom of God should be. It's those windows that I talked about earlier that he's letting them look through and see this is what the kingdom of God is really like. Jesus is inviting his followers into a different reality, a new reality, a kingdom reality. How many times as we read through that Matthew 13 did we hear the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, the kingdom of heaven is like, over and over. The parables show us patterns of God's work. And one of the primary themes that comes up again and again that Jesus seems to stress in his parables is the idea that faith is central to the kingdom. Again, Jesus isn't line by line teaching, but he's letting us see, letting us see in essence the, the reality that the kingdom of God really is. And as you and I meditate on, absorb those parables, they change us. They change our thinking, our, our, our perception of what's real and what's going on. And so regarding faith in these parables, I think there's two very distinct aspects that Jesus kind of stresses in these. The first one is that faith means patience. Uh, Tom, we don't really want to hear this one. <laughs> think about it. God didn't tear out the weeds before the harvest time. He just let them grow up, kind of sat there and watched it happen. Same thing with the, uh, the, the mustard seed. It wasn't all of a sudden a fully grown bush. No, it had to grow up. It had to take the time. Or, or the leaven. The, the leaven didn't just like, Pow! there it went. No, it had to, had to take time. Truth is that God's kingdom often seems to come slowly. So if we want to be in step with his kingdom, we need to be patient.
God is working even when we can't see him. The kingdom is being more and more established. It may not be, it's often not in our timing. Anybody with me? And this is, this is so foreign to us, especially in our society. We have like instant everything. We want everything now. Someone said that, that, that God is the God of the 11th hour. I don't know that you can emphatically say that from scripture, but anybody here besides me ever experienced that once or twice? Like, yeah. <clears throat> so there's a patience aspect to faith in Jesus' parables. My, uh, my Facebook friend, Jim Gilbert, said it like this, faith has more to do with hiking boots and the long haul than dress shoes and a short prayer. Whew. I think he's right. Peter Lightheart said it this way, God's kingdom comes slowly, imperceptibly, and even when it comes, it does not necessarily overwhelm us with its grandeur. That is not the kind of kingdom we expect or want, but it is the kind of kingdom we should expect from a king who brings his kingdom through a cross. It's different than the way that the world works. There is a patience aspect to the kingdom of God. So if you want it your way and you want it now, you might need to rethink. Second emphasis of faith is that faith means we can't just trust our senses. That it's not just about what we can know with our five senses, our, what we can hear and smell and taste and see and touch. Did I get them all? I don't know. You know what I mean. There's more to the picture than just that. There's, there's more to the, the final outcome, if you will. See, you and I, we might look at that mustard bush, that mustard seed bush, and we would think, well, it is pretty big compared to the other garden plants. But compared to that giant oak tree, it looks pretty insignificant. You know, you and I might look at the, the empires and the kingdoms and the nations of the world like that giant oak tree. They look pretty impressive, and we might feel inferior. We, we, we don't have missiles and jets and atomic weapons. But I'll guarantee that that mustard bush is way more important and way more, way more powerful than that giant oak tree that we're looking at in the natural. Same thing with, with 11. You know, at first glance, it doesn't look like it's doing anything. Anybody ever watched, tried to watch dough rise? <laughs> There's nothing going on. Yeah, just a, and yet there is. That, dough, that, that leaven is going into the dough and it's creating what it's supposed to do and it's getting it ready to become bread or donuts like out there. Thanks to the Aelins for the donuts, by the way. Jesus shows us over and over that the ways of his kingdom are different than the ways of the world. You can't just look at the physical. There is more to the picture. Let me give you a practical illustration. My friend John Barkanik uh, just came out with a, a, a new manuscript. It's soon to be a new book, but he shared th this idea in there. Remember King Ahaz from the Old Testament? Not a good king, all right? And at one point, Ahaz... Um, has two uh, other kingdoms who are coming to attack him. Both of, each of them is bigger than his. And he is petrified uh, by, by this, this thing that's going on. And it says this, Isaiah 7, 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're so scared, they're shaking, all right? 
And, and honestly, I kind of get it because they're, they're greatly outnumbered. You know, they got these armies coming against them. But listen to what God says to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God is saying, don't worry, don't be afraid. But then he says, if you're not strong in your faith, you're not strong at all. See, in other words, the important thing here is Ahaz's faith. Ahaz was looking with his physical eyes at those armies that are coming against him. And he's terrified. He's shaking, right? But God is saying, hey, there's a a larger reality going on here that you need to get a hold of. But Ahaz, um, can I say it this way? He misdiagnosed the situation. He was looking strictly with his physical eyes. He sees that he's greatly outnumbered and he is panic mode. And God's saying, no, 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 you need faith. You need to look from a heavenly perspective. You need to see this situation differently. And that's what God says to us, to you and me. We need to look at it differently. It's not just with our physical senses. Faith is the core of everything in the kingdom. Let's fast forward one generation. Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, had a similar situation, if you remember. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, coming against him. And, and he's outnumbered. Assyria was the dominant world power at that point. And if you remember the story, uh, Sennacherib sent a message to, to Hezekiah and said, don't, don't be deceived that, in the thinking that your God is going to help you. We've already wiped out all of these other ones. You, you don't have a chance, buddy. It's not going to happen. What, 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 is, what is the king of Assyria, what is Sennacherib doing in that situation? He is, before attacking physically, he is attacking Hezekiah's faith. You with me? But Hezekiah had a very different response. Instead of shaking like a leaf, he took that declaration of war into the temple, laid it on the altar, and he prayed. Here's what he says. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah is is saying, look, look, they're right. These guys, they're they're stronger than us. There's more of them. They they have wiped out all these other people, but, but we know you, and you are more powerful. What's Hezekiah doing? He's putting his trust not in what is seen, but what is unseen. Scripture says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among all those who were before him. The difference between Hezekiah and Ahaz was his faith. Ahaz only believed what he could see, but faith sees beyond the physical, beyond our five senses. For, for us today, for the context that we're talking about here, faith sees beyond the natural. Faith has eyes to see God and his strength. So in essence, faith puts, puts the kingdom of God into action, if you will. A few weeks ago, we sang the song, The Potter's Hand, and one line in there just struck me as we sang it. Teach me, dear Lord, to live all of my life through your eyes. What if we did that? 
to live all of our life through his eyes, not seeing with just our own physical eyes here and now. See, and I think, I think honestly, I don't think you and I, I think you and I often miss how important this really is. How many times in, in, uh, as we look at Jesus' life, is he upset, is he unhappy, is he rebuking his disciples, his followers because of a lack of faith? Oh, you of little faith. I mean, five or six times just in the book of Matthew. I think this is a big deal. So I want us to understand that Jesus is driving home the the faith aspect again and again in his parables. Faith like a mustard seed. Faith that produces a great harvest. Faith that gives up everything else just to obtain the one thing that is really needful. What's the difference between the the various ones that were caught up in the net? Some had faith. I mean, you just see this over and over. While we're at it, I want to bring in that that, that faith aspect to the the parable of the treasure and the pearl. Let me set this up. I think that those two parables um, remind us of Solomon's wisdom. Remember Solomon told his son that you need to get wisdom, that it's the most important, it's better than jewels, it's better than gold or silver, buy it. But Jesus, I think, echoes those words when he says that the kingdom of God is more valuable than anything else. Sell everything you have. It's that valuable, guys. But in what he says, there is the suggestion, I think maybe implication might be a better word, that this is beyond life as usual. Some commentators suggest that the kingdom subverts life as usual. The, the kingdom is so important that it, it causes people to act in, in what might be called an irrational way beyond our rational, cognizant thinking. It says, forget my 401k and, and savings. I want God and his kingdom. And, and don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you to get rid of your retirement savings, all right? The Bible talks a lot about stewardship with finances. It talks about looking to the future and being careful and taking care of family. I get all of that, all right? But, if we're going to be part of the kingdom of God, there are going to be times that we're going to have to act in a radical way, a way that does not make sense from a worldly perspective. Now, now let me point out, we can't really buy the kingdom, so Jesus isn't really here talking so much about money as he is everything, that everything in our lives should get reoriented around kingdom life. Gaining the kingdom means giving up other things that that might compete with it. And that type of life doesn't make sense to somebody who's on the outside looking in, if you will. The kingdom that Jesus brought is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who who aren't part of the kingdom, they don't get it. They, They see you wasting your time and your money on church stuff. They see you throwing your life away. But when you're part of a a different kingdom, a completely different system, you live differently. You have to. Our home group a while back watched a video series called The Holy Who. It was about the Holy Spirit by Brady Boyd uh, from Colorado Springs. He said this, the measure of our faith isn't seen by the number of our prayers we get answered but by the amount of our life we're willing to surrender. Let me me take out that negative statement and just make this whole thing a positive statement. The measure of our faith is seen by the amount of of our life we're willing to surrender. 
The measure of our faith is seen by the amount of our life we're willing to surrender. I think he's right. Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he said it like this. Perhaps we were all in the position of the man in Morton Kelsey's story who came to the edge of an abyss. As he stood there wondering what to do next, he was amazed to discover a tightrope stretched across the abyss. And slowly, surely, across the rope came an acrobat pushing a wheelbarrow with another performer in it. When they finally reached the safety of solid ground, the acrobat smiled at the man's amazement. Don't you think I can do it again, he asked. And the man replied, why, yes, I certainly believe you can. The acrobat put his question again, and when the answer was the same, he pointed to the wheelbarrow and said, good, then get in and I will take you across. What did the traveler do? This is just the question we have to ask ourselves about Jesus Christ. Do we state our belief in him in no uncertain terms, even in finely articulated creeds, and then refuse to get into the wheelbarrow? What we do with the lordship of Jesus is a better indication of our faith than just what we think. Whew. Faith is giving up everything else to be fully involved in the kingdom. Let me, let me start to bring this to a close. The end of Matthew 13, Jesus in his hometown, there are people there who, if you think about it, in essence, they are acting out part of the parable of the sower. He's sowing seed, it's fallen on hard ground, right? We know this guy, we know his family. He's not special, he's just like us. There's a, there's a familiarity there that causes them to kind of push him away. And here's the deal, I think you and I can sometimes do the same thing. We've known him for a long time and it's to be old hat. I think God wants us to recognize the the power and the reality of our sinful nature. If you ever find yourself not responding to God's truth, it should cause you to run as fast as you can to the cross. Mark Vrokop said this, we must remember that conviction of sin and spiritual understanding is not a human birthright. They're gifts from God. And the Bible seems very clear that a hardness of heart can set in. I I love that Daryl keeps over and over and over, week after week, reminding us that as we gather, we're not just hearing some nice words, that God is talking to us, that the creator of everything is speaking into us. How dare we take that for granted? Yet we have a tendency to easily miss it. I think the Jesus story about the sower, specifically the third part where the the thorns kind of choke out the plants, that's really important for us. What, what is it that, that chokes it out? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Cares of the world. And, and some of you are thinking, well, I'm not rich. Yeah, maybe by American standards you're not, but by 98% of the population of the world, you have wealth beyond imagination. And those things can choke it out. And that's, that's not generally a quick process you know, back when I was a really new Christian in high school, I was part of a, uh, a group that ministered at, uh, at, at various local churches. We did music and drama. Now, drama is probably an overstatement. We did cheesy skits, all right? Um, and one of the skits that we did was based on the parable of the sower, and we would act it out. When we got to that part, there was somebody that would, would, would do, you know, kind of squat down, and they would act like they were growing up, and then somebody else would come over and choke them and knock them on the ground. And 
there were relatively few injuries in that. But as I, as I reflect back on it, um, I don't think that's an accurate depiction because it's not, that choking out is not a quick process. It's generally really slow, almost imperceptible. We don't even notice that our faith is getting choked to death. And yet it can happen slowly, imperceptibly, until one day we, we wake up and we wonder how we got to the place that we are. But it happens. I want to remind us that our emphases for this year, four things, bold, persistent prayer, stepping out in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, walking in unity, living in righteousness. Each of those, if you think about it, takes faith. They take us, they, 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 it takes us stepping out in faith. The, the leaven doesn't do any good if it's sitting in a bowl over on the side. It's got to get involved with the dough. There's got to be some kind of interaction going on there. You with me? And, and none of those four things can happen if our faith gets choked out. Somebody, as I was uh, studying for this message, looking at various different commentaries and different things, somebody said that they think that Matthew 13 should be entitled a wake-up call. I would suggest that God is speaking to us this morning a couple of things that I think are really important. One, don't allow complacency to set in. In other words, don't get to the place where those people in Jesus' hometown where they were so familiar that they didn't want to hear him. Don't let, don't let things choke your faith out. And secondly, keep walking in faith. Keep walking in faith. By, by God's grace, pursue God's kingdom as though it's the most important thing, because it is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in your grace, you have given each one of us a measure of faith. And, and, and Father, as, as, as managers, may we steward that faith, that it might grow and flourish, that it might make a difference, not, not only in our lives, but, but in the lives of people that we interact with. God, may we, may we never grow complacent and take you for granted. Instead, Lord, we ask that by your mercy, you might cause us to pursue you fully, wholeheartedly, knowing that you are worth far more than anything else than everything else that there is. God, may we be, may we be pressed so close to you that the cares of the world and the, the, the deceitfulness of riches wouldn't have a chance of choking out our faith. And Father, I ask that for those who might have already come to that place of having the, the faith choked somewhat, and if we're honest, maybe that's every one of us in some measure, would you, in your mercy and love, draw us back to your arms of grace? Pick us up, dust us off, and, and once again set us on the path that you have for us. Lord, we trust you. And we are so grateful for your mercy in our lives. Amen.